Welcome to the Waymaker Fireside Chat Podcast, where our purpose is to grow your life and change the world. In this episode, we'll discuss the push for diversity and inclusion. Lewis Carr is a founder of Waymaker, the Lewis Carr Internship Foundation, the Blueprint Men's Summit, is president of media sales at BET Networks and author of Dirty Little Secrets. Today, we're sitting down with Angela Velo as a partner at Velo Car, a firm with the goal of equipping organizations with sustainable diversity and inclusion. Angela has a multitude of insightful experience to share. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. I'm Lois Carr, and welcome to the Waymaker Podcast. And today we have as our special guest Angela Velo partner at Velo Carp uh, Consulting Firm uh, in DE&I space. Angela, welcome to Waymaker. Thank you. Thank you, Lewis. Thank you so much for having me. It is such a pleasure to be here, and I am so excited about our conversation today. So thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. As you know, uh, Waymaker is a brand that focuses on motivating, educating, and inspiring people to live their best life in order to change their families, their communities, and eventually the country. So we're glad to have this conversation with you today uh, because clearly what you do for a living is a Waymaker for a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Angela, let's start by uh, asking you, what was your intent when you went to law school? What did you really want to come out and do with your life? Oh, wow, Lewis, that is such a good question. Um, You know, I was first influenced to go to law school because I grew up in um, Jim Crow, Louisiana, and, you know, experienced separate facilities and, uh, you know, was taught from a very early age by my parents to use my voice to stand up for equality and justice. And it was at that time in my life when I was very young that I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer because I wanted to be able to make some positive change in the world. So I started off with those very idealistic, um, you know, uh, visions as as a young child. And when I went to law school, um, I didn't immediately come out and begin to do this work. Uh, In fact, I was a real estate lawyer for, uh, for many years. Uh, And then I did work uh, in government relations, representing cities, foreign governments, um, corporations uh, on Capitol Hill as as a lobbyist or a government relations lawyer. And then, you know, it was later that I ended up um, taking on diversity uh, as a profession. But I was always involved in my various law firms uh, in promoting uh, diversity and trying to mentor uh, the very few um, Black lawyers that were there in those firms at that time. So there's a story that uh, came out on LinkedIn uh, today uh, that talked about your dad. Uh, And so maybe you inherited it. Uh, some of this from him. Uh, Tell us about uh, that first day uh, on earth and uh, what he did to sort of set you on this path. So my late father, whom I always love talking about, um, loved to tell this story about um, 
the day I was born. So I was born uh, in Abbeville, Louisiana, uh, in a hospital which is no longer there today, but uh, it was segregated at the time. So when, you know, the little baby nurseries that they have um, after, you know, the birth, uh, they took me over to the nursery, but they put me in the colored nursery. Well, my father had a fit and he kicked up such a dust storm in the hospital and insisted that I be put in the main nursery. The only thing is they ended up putting me behind the door so that you really couldn't see me from, you know, the viewing window, how you could see all the babies. Um, but he said, at least you made it. You made, you were in the room. They stuck you behind the door, but I fought to get you in that room. So he used to say that I, you know, uh, was born, uh, you know, uh, fighting for civil rights, you know, from the day I was born. That's a great story. So tell us about your firm. Uh, and what is the mission uh, of your firm? So my firm, uh, Lewis, uh, we we started uh, Velo Carp Consulting. It's a small boutique consulting firm, uh, which I started with my business partner, Mitchell Carp, uh, in 2004. Uh, and we really started the firm to help organizations uh, utilize uh, and understand the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and help them to understand how the importance of diversity uh, and creating inclusive environments, you know, that this is what is needed for everyone to be able to make their best contribution. You know, I had been a chief diversity officer at two major companies before starting this firm. So I was first at Texaco um, following the settlement of a major discrimination lawsuit in 1997. And I stayed there um, for about six years and built and developed the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and helped Texaco to turn around its image and reputation following this racial discrimination lawsuit uh, that had Texaco on the front page of every major uh, newspaper in the country. And at that time, Texaco was known as the most racist company in America because of this very uh, salacious story. Um, it's the black jelly bean story. If you want to, we can come back and talk about that. I remember. Uh, you remember the black jelly bean story. So mm -hmm. since we started it, I probably should go ahead and say it for anyone listening um, that may not know of this story. African-Americans in the company had brought um, a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit, alleging discrimination on the basis of pay and promotions. Uh, that lawsuit had been filed uh, in the courts and was awaiting um, you know, class action status. Two white male managers in the company uh, were secretly tape recorded one day uh, talking about the lawsuit. And they were talking about destroying documents in connection with the litigation. Not so bright, right? And in that meeting, they also talked about black employees as being like black jelly beans stuck at the bottom of the jelly bean jar. And they used the N word, and uh, it wasn't. It was pretty ugly. What they didn't know is that the third person sitting in the meeting had a pocket uh, tape recorder and recorded the entire conversation. When that meeting was over, that person went to the uh, lawyer for uh, African-American employees. The lawyer was Cyrus uh, Mary. And then Cyrus Mary went to the New York Times. They published the entire transcript on the front page of the New York Times. Well, within a 24-hour period, Texaco's stock 
price plummeted by $1 billion, $1 billion, with a B, not an M, $1 billion. So the CEO was forced to settle the lawsuit to just stem the tide because they were just, you know, losing money like crazy. Um, and they settled that suit for $176 million. I met the CEO um, very shortly thereafter, and I was trying to get him as a client my law firm, right? I wanted to bring him in as a client. And after several conversations, he said to me, how about coming to work for us? And I said to him, you must be nuts. You're the most racist company in America. I'll be your outside lawyer, but I don't want to go to work for you. Anyway, long story short, um, over time, he convinced me and we negotiated a deal where I was going to become the first chief diversity officer for Texaco. And that was at a time when, you know, these positions didn't really exist. And Texaco was one of the first companies to have someone hired at a senior level to be in that role overseeing diversity. Um, so that's how I got my start. Um, in diversity as a full-time job. And I was there for about seven years uh, until we got acquired by Chevron and then the whole operation moved to the West Coast. But then I got recruited to go to work for Colgate Palmolive, the toothpaste company, and I was the first global chief diversity officer. So I got to do some of the same work, but on a global basis, traveling around to some of their uh, global subsidiaries in Europe and in Latin America, working on issues of diversity and inclusion. So then armed with all of this knowledge and expertise, um, I wanted to come out and be able to do this on my own, working for myself. And I wanted to be able to go back to the law firm world because at that time, diversity was really just beginning to be a thing uh, in law firms. Uh, so I came out and started doing some of this work on my own. And then I had the good fortune of meeting my business partner, Mitchell Karp. And um, he's also a lawyer and he's got a background in organization development. So we teamed up and that was 17 years ago and the rest is history. So we've, um, we've been enjoying the work we do uh, and it's more important than ever today. Wow. So let's, let's talk about some of that work. So, in 2020, uh, we had uh, Memorial Day weekend, and uh, that created the George Floyd incident, but it also created Central Park County. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, how have those incidents impacted your business? I'm assuming Central Park Karen probably <laughs> impacted it more than George Floyd. Uh, because we all in corporate America can relate in some way to that type of thinking and behavior. So talk about that for a little bit. How did 2020 sort of drive or not drive your business to where it is today? So that is such a great question, Louis. 2020 was, um, you know, an inflection, a, a major, major turning point. Um, I will tell you that George Floyd changed everything. So when the pandemic first started, um, so many of our chief diversity officer clients were wringing their hands and trying to figure out what to do and how to keep diversity and inclusion relevant and alive. Because at that time, you know, most companies were trying to figure out how to save their businesses, right? Everybody was focused on trying to keep sales up because nobody knew where this pandemic was going. So there was a moment in which our business had really quieted down uh, or significantly got, had gone down because it was like companies were not, I will just be honest with you, they were not focused on diversity and inclusion. They were focused on saving the business. 
then suddenly it was the confluence of, yep, we had Central Park, we had George Floyd, we had Breonna Taylor, we had Oman Aubrey, we had all of these horrible, you know, racial uh, killings and incidences that were just, you couldn't avoid having to look at this. You couldn't avoid reckoning with where we were as a country. And within a week, and I kid you not, Lewis, our phone was ringing off the hook. Our business like tripled or quadrupled within like a week to a month time. I mean, there was so much that we could hardly even keep up with the phone calls. So it was at that moment that I think every organization understood that they had to do more because then this is when, you know, also um, employees started demanding, you know, support for, for BLM, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and all of these companies, law firms, museums, and other organizations that we work with, you know, went out on social media and made these statements. And many of them had to retract statements because they said all lives matter, you know, mm -hmm. and they, they just got crucified uh, on social media. So we were getting those calls to please help us to know what to say, what not to say, help us with the statements, help us with the set of commitments. Uh, and then of course, Everyone wanted, um, you know, a culture assessment, uh, a DEIA strategic plan. Everyone wanted training, uh, bias training, and then, you know, more recently, anti-racism training. So, I mean, George Floyd really created um, a huge racial reckoning uh, where so many of these organizations, I think, had to stop and think about uh, racial inequality in a way that I had never seen them consider in the 25 years that I've been doing this work. So it really, it really was, um, well, it's something that makes me hopeful because it's the first time I've ever seen organizations taking the issue of race as seriously as they are now. Now, I don't know where this is ultimately going to go. I mean, I'm not naive. I've been out here for a while. So mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm seeing the possibility of some real and systemic change. I think time will tell, but I can tell you that we're having very different conversations and different engagements than we've ever had. So are they talking to you about your services because it's just the right thing to do, or is it the right thing to do for business, or is it both? I think, I think it's both. And I think it depends on the organization. I think some organizations, um, well, I mean, look, here's the, here's the good news is that I, I think it, it's, it's a blended approach. I think it's, it's multiple things. So given this moment in time and where we are, I think every organization understands that you have to at least appear to care about diversity and inclusion. Uh, and you have to at least say it's the right thing to do. Um, and I think many of them really do believe that. Um, but we always suggest to organizations that when we are helping them develop the business case, that we, we come up with multiple factors. So it's the right thing to do, yes. Uh, and it's also good for business. So I like to do the both and because anyone who is uh, selling a product or a service understands that uh, it matters. Uh, it matters because your consumers are diverse and growing uh, uh, increasingly more diverse. 
Uh, you have to have people in your company who understand those consumers and what those consumers want. And you also have to understand that, uh, you know, in order to be able to recruit more talent, you need to, um, you know, uh, care about diversity and inclusion and um, have a set of commitments out there because, you know, people don't want to go to work for companies uh, that are not committed to diversity and inclusion and employees are demanding it. Um, you know, one of the things we did, Lewis, right after um, uh, George Floyd was murdered is so many organizations brought us in to do listening sessions, mm -hmm. including your company, Viacom CBS. Um, because companies realized that it was so important to give people an opportunity to vent, to give people an opportunity to say, what were they experiencing? How are they feeling? How are they coping? You know, what kind of self-care were they engaging in? So we have done listening sessions uh, for companies all over the country, and many of these companies are global. So we were also interestingly hearing from employees in other countries. And it was interesting to hear sort of the, um, the uniformity in terms of response that one, I think people were all just emotionally exhausted from the pandemic you know, from the killings. And of course, we all witnessed the worldwide protests that ensued after these uh, horrible mm -hmm. murders. Um, but even in Europe, in Latin America, this issue of, uh, you know, racial inequality and the need for social justice, uh, it wasn't just a U.S. issue. I mean, it was prompted by the killings in the U.S. But, you know, we saw these issues of colonialism uh, play out all over the world. And, you know, the anti-Blackness um, sentiment and biases that exist all over the world. So it was really heartening to do these listening sessions. And I think it really uh, helped people. It was cathartic because it helped people to really talk for the first time openly with their colleagues about how they were feeling. And for many Black employees, it gave them license to talk about some of their own experiences with uh, negative uh, interactions with police, um, racial profiling, being followed in stores or being, you know, um, suspected of, uh, you know, or being seen as a threat. So that was really eye-opening uh, for so many companies. And it, it then served as, as the launch pad for them to do more work, uh, you know, in the area of diversity and inclusion. So, so I know every company is different, Angela, but what are some of the common obstacles that you found by working with some of these companies that kind of go across the spectrum? Uh, so are, are there any commonalities why people haven't done it or are slow to do it or they don't see the the benefits of it? I think it's a combination of factors, Lewis. So we do see a lot of commonalities that uh, in terms of, you know, racial equity, um, diversity and inclusion. We see those commonalities, whether it's across um, you know, law firms, corporations, museums, other nonprofits, and we'll get to those in a minute. I think many organizations intend to do well uh, and thought they or think they have systems and policies in place uh, to to create you know inclusive cultures and and fairness. And listen, most of the organizations that I work in really think they're a meritocracy. They think that it's all about you know, just doing the best work and that they hire the best candidates. And they think that, uh, you know, that this notion of, you know, sort of 
cream rises to the top. And, you know, that's... And how do you address that with them? Um, well, we help them to, we, we, part of our job is to hold up a mirror. So often when we do culture assessments or interviews or focus groups, we talk to people and we ask them, how are they experiencing the organization? Do they think they're getting um, equal access to developmental opportunities? Do they have a mentor or a sponsor? Um, you know, do they feel welcomed and included? So we're able to take that information back and say, without attribution, because we do it sort of, you know, on an anonymous basis, uh, we're able to say to that company, here's what your people are saying. And, and actually in the listening sessions we did, one of the questions we asked was, how do, you know, the events that are happening in the world, these police shootings, uh, you know, uh, the, the Central Park, uh, you know, Karen issue, how do some of these issues show up in your own work environment? So people were able to give us examples of of how some of these issues of racial inequality show up at work. So part of this is about sharing back with organizations how different people are experiencing the organization. What are women saying? What are people of color saying? And then even more specifically, what are blacks saying? You know, what are Asians saying? What are Latinx and Hispanics saying? So you really get a sense. And then, and then that's just part of it. Okay, so we're identifying uh, challenges. And then our job is to help them come up with recommendations in terms of how they will address those challenges. So <clears throat> we, we hear this term unconscious bias. Define for the listening audience the difference between conscious bias and unconscious bias, because the pain is the same for most people already. So, you know, whether the intent is the same, but the pain is the same. So define that for us. So, you know, we, we say that it is a preference for or against a person or a group. Um, you know, there is conscious bias, and sadly, we have seen far too much evidence of conscious bias uh, over the last four years. You know, hate crimes. Uh, you know, we can start, we can just tick them off. You know, Mother Emanuel Church in South Carolina, you know, the young white man who went in and shot up, you know, those black parishioners. Uh, you know, Tree of Life, uh, the Jewish synagogue in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, the Pulse nightclub shooting. George Floyd, eight minutes and 45 seconds. That's a conscious bias. Uh, the people who uh, stormed the Capitol, the insurrectionists, the white supremacists on January 6th, they had on T-shirts that says six million Jews was not enough. That is a conscious bias. That is an intentional, deliberate, conscious hatred, animus, hostility against Jews against blacks. Um, so many of the Capitol Hill policemen, African-American Capitol Hill police who were defending the Capitol said they were called the N-word for three hours while they were trying to hold our Capitol up and defend our democracy. Those are examples of conscious biases, okay? So that stuff is real, it's out there, and, uh, you know, we've got a real resurgence of it. And I think over the last four years, you know, we had a president, unfortunately, who, who I don't think he created it, but he fomented it. He normalized it. He made it okay to come out and just have overt hatred, hostility to display it and in violent ways. You know, what we see in the workplace, Lewis, 
And what all the research shows is what, what you're more likely to see is unconscious bias. So it's hidden. It's so deeply, you know, it's implicit. Now, look, I'm not naive. There's some conscious bias that also happens in the workplace. But I think, you know, for the most part, it's it's unconscious because people think they're, they're being fair and objective. Um, and, you know, they think they're adhering to, you know, the meritocracy. But there are all of these subtle ways, uh, or some of them are not so subtle, but, but subtle ways in which we send messages to people about, you know, who's an insider, who's an outsider, who's an us, who's a them. Um, and you asked earlier about, you know, some of what, what do I see as some of the uniform ways that these barriers show up. So for instance, you know, Prove it again. PIA, it's actually a phenomenon. It's a theory called prove it again. That so often for people of color, you know, we have the credentials, we have the experience, we have the track record, but somehow we're, we're asked to prove it over and over again. You know, oh, she's not quite ready for that promotion. Let's Let's hold her back. We'd hate to see her succeed, uh, fail. But, you know, often if it's a white male, uh, there's a much greater likelihood that people will say, well, you know, he hasn't done it before, but I have every confidence that he can do it and we're going to help him succeed. So, you know, often we see that the same behavior gets interpreted differently on the issue of mistakes. We know and research shows that people of color, um, you know, are, are burdened uh, with mistakes for a much longer time, that it's much harder for us to overcome uh, a misstep or a mistake. Whereas often if it's uh, a white male, we'll say part of a learning curve, it's to be expected, right? So it's forgiven more easily. You know, when it comes to assertive behavior, we, we know that uh, often, you know, when it's uh, a person of color, particularly an African-American, you know, you get labeled if you're assertive, you know, and you're somebody who has, you know, opinions and passion and strong ideas, you get labeled as angry black man, angry black woman, right? If it's a white person or a white man, often it's Oh, well, he knows his stuff, you know, he, he really, he's, he's passionate, you know, but often we get called too ambitious. So this stuff is real um, and it, it keeps showing up again and again, it, work opportunities, you know, um, assignments. What mm -hmm. kind of work do you get asked to work on? Do you get like the high profile stuff? You know, the research uh, calls it like the glamour work. You know, the stuff that's that's important to the company that's on somebody's radar screen, on the leaders or the, the CEO's radar screen. Often we get the administrative work or the busy work, but it's not work that helps you to grow and develop and move to the next step on the corporate ladder. So those are just some of the few examples of, you know, consistent barriers that we see across so many industries. Um, we see it in law firms, we see it in corporations, we see it in, in some of our cultural institutions. So... If you're African-American and you're sitting in a company right now and you're the only one or you're one of 10 or you're two of 20, is there a role for you in trying to help with a new culture, a new environment? Or as a lot of Black people say, we didn't create it, so why should we help fix it? You know, we didn't break it. Why should we have to help fix it? How do you address that? 
you know, it's true. We didn't break it, but you know what? We've got the greatest stake in helping to make it right and helping to, to rectify the situation. So I encourage every um, person of color uh, who is in an organization. And um, I think there's a greater onus, uh, the more senior you are, to use your voice, to speak up, um, to try to elevate others and to bring these issues to the um, attention of senior leadership. Uh, you know, I think obviously it has to be done in the right way. And I think once you develop, you know, some credibility and you have some, some influence, uh, and some skills, I think you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your community <clears throat> to use your voice. Cause you didn't get to those positions to not try to pull someone else up. All of us got to where we are because someone helped us. Someone made it possible. We are all standing on the shoulders of people who came before us. So I've always felt like it was my personal obligation uh, to try to pull others along and to speak up, to use your voice, to try to do it in, in, um, in smart ways, uh, in diplomatic ways. And I'll say that today more than ever, you know, like we are really popular in organizations today. Like, you know, everybody wants like, okay, let's get our black people together. Let's bring together our senior leaders of color. And, you know, this is a time when we're seeing people get elevated, like left and right. I'm seeing people getting promotions that they probably should have gotten a long time ago. But if ever there were a time to use your voice, it is now because people are listening. I don't know how long they're going to be listening. Um, I like to say we got to make hay while the sun shining. So people are listening right now, want to make some change, understand they have to make some change. So this is not a time to be shy. This is not a time to sit back. This is a time to step up, use your voice, and, and, and get involved. So for the people who really need to make a business case about DE&I, what is your process to helping people sort of come to that conclusion that it's not just the right thing to do. It's also the right thing to do for business. Yeah. So part of what we try to do, um, Lewis, is understand each organization that we're working in. So, you know, we like to say, look, you're the experts on your business. You know, we're DEI experts, but, you know, let's put our heads together. And we like to think of ourselves as thought partners. So once we understand your business and how you make money and how your business operates, then we can help you put together your business case. So, you know, I always say to everybody, you ought to start with the right thing to do because that ought to be the first reason to care. But, you know, sometimes organizations don't want to start there and they want to start with, it's all about business. So who are your consumers? I typically ask, who are you selling your products to? And who would you like to be selling your products to? You know, are you um, maxed out uh, with, with your current uh, consumer base? And where might you look for new consumers? You know, we represent one uh, company who's in the beauty industry. And you know, they have recognized um, that there is uh, an entire market of, you know, ethnic women who buy their products. So it means expanding product lines, shades of product, um, different, uh, you know, hair products to, to be able to uh, market to women with, uh, you know, different hair types. And that there is a huge business there. 
um, to be had. Um, in law firms, for instance, one of the things that, you know, we have worked with law firms on for years is understanding that your corporate clients are making diversity one of the criterion on which they are selecting outside counsel. And these efforts have been, you know, ramping up for a number of years. But even, you know, today, as recently as a, a couple months ago, uh, we're seeing more corporations come out with much more aggressive um, stances around diversity. Coca-Cola, for instance, just last month issued a statement saying um, that um, they're not going to do business with law firms unless I think it's 30% of the people working on their matters are people of color. Uh, and uh, I think half of those have to be African-Americans. And that if those corporations don't meet that uh, those goals, that Coca-Cola reserves the right to withhold, I think it's 30% of the payment. So, I mean, that's kind of like a game changer. I mean, there've been other corporations who have, you know, 10% here and there, 15%, but Coca-Cola has come out with one of the most ambitious, uh, you know, goals around, you know, to get our business, this is what you need to do. So that's a pretty powerful business case. So that's, that's one business case for law firms, but we also know that from a recruiting standpoint, that when associates or you know, law school grads are looking at which firm they're going to go with, and you've got choices, you know, all of this stuff is pretty transparent now. They're going to go on your website. They're going to look at NALP. NALP is a legal organization, National Association of Law Placement, that tracks demographics of law firms, and they track progress year over year. So all of this stuff can be found now. And if you don't have a track record, unfortunately, not very many law firms have a great track record, but you don't want to be the worst, the worst, and you want to be the best of the best so that you can attract uh, the diverse talent that you want. So that's one, one element of the business case. Another element of the business case is, you know, there's all this research now, um, it's been out for a while, that shows that diverse teams outperform homogeneous teams. That if you have diversity, one, you're going to avoid groupthink, because groupthink is dangerous, right? If you got everybody coming from the same background, you're probably going to get a limited set of ideas, solutions, you know, innovation. But if you have a diverse team, you're much more likely to get cutting edge solutions, innovation, uh, creativity. So I think organizations are more and more aware of the value of diverse teams. And then I'll say lastly, you know, in financial, well, you know, from a financial standpoint, not only in terms of consumers, but there's now research that shows that companies that are top quartile for diversity outperform the competition, um, that they have higher profitability of 25%. 25% greater profitability when you have um, uh, increased gender diversity in senior leadership. And in terms of ethnic um, uh, diversity, the studies show that um, increase in profitability by some 35% uh, when you have diversity in your C-suite. So those are pretty compelling, pretty compelling statistics and reasons to uh, focus on diversity. Let's uh, jump to corporate boards right now. You, you serve on corporate board, and we know that there's been deficiency of people of color on corporate boards. Uh, what is your advice to uh, boards 
uh, in today's world on the sort of um, added value that diverse board members give a corporate board? So I think some of the same statistics that I just shared, Lewis, I think also apply to boards, that when you have diversity on boards, uh, you know, uh, you're going to get a wider range of perspectives and views. Um, you're going to avoid, you know, this notion of groupthink. Uh, and I think some of the percentages about outperforming the competition also relate to corporate boards. So again, you know, uh, 25% um, increase in profitability when you have women, um, and I think it was 35% increase in profitability when you have people of color. Uh, so there's a lot of good reason for it. And in addition, today, there are now laws requiring it. So California uh, just recently uh, passed a law saying that you have to have uh, at least one ethnic minority. Two years ago, they had passed uh, a ruling that you had to have at least one woman. Uh, and there was some litigation over that. Well, if you're going to mandate women, why would you also mandate ethnic diversity? So now California has that law. NASDAQ recently uh, issued a requirement that um, there uh, for companies in the NASDAQ uh, index that you have to have, um, you know, uh, either uh, a woman, uh, ethnic minority, or I think LGBT person uh, on, on your board. So I think we're going to see more and more, you know, sort of regulatory requirements. Um, there is, you know, the business of diverse perspectives and wanting to represent uh, your consumer base. But still, we know that it is hard because so much of the recruiting of board members comes from existing board members. So we've had sort of a chicken and egg situation that if you have uh, a board that's not diverse, uh, people on boards, uh, you know, unfortunately, research shows that often people don't have um a network that is diverse. So if your network is homogeneous, your board is homogeneous, you're going to get the same thing. So people bring their friends and contacts to the board. But I think today boards are getting smarter about the need for diversity. And we've seen so many wonderful, um, you know, additions to boards since George Floyd was murdered. We've, we're seeing so many more appointments of uh, Blacks and women to these corporate boards. Uh, many of them are using search firms. Um, some of them are requiring the Rooney Rule, you know, the Rooney Rule, which comes from football, that you've got to have at least one candidate. Now, you know, my own thinking is one candidate is not enough because then you get to check the box. Oh, yeah, well, we had one. That person wasn't the right one. Well, you need more than one candidate in the pool, one more than one, uh, you know, candidate of color in the pool. Um, but it's a start. So... That's, I'm going to go personal with you now. Uh -oh. uh, the, the, the title of our podcast is Waymaker. Who have been some of the waymakers in your life that, you know, came in and put you on paths that you didn't see and to get you to where you are today? Let's talk mm -hmm. about some of those individuals. Mm -hmm. Well, the first person I have to talk about is my father, um, because my father was um, a very unusual man for his time growing up in segregated Louisiana. Um, you know, he was educated, unlike uh, his siblings, who were all in the farming business. Um, he had a sister who became a nurse, but he got a master's degree uh, in education. He was an educator. He taught uh, school uh, for 
some years. He also ran government programs, Head Start programs, community action programs, but he also had an entrepreneurial streak, uh, which uh, I credit him for wanting to start my own business because I got that from my dad growing up that uh, he went into the oil business in 1974 and he was the first African-American in Louisiana to to own his own business uh, in the oil field industry. Uh, And, you know, so I learned so many lessons from my dad who persevered through Uh, so much racism and discrimination. Um, My father was even more fair-skinned than I am. So when he first started the oil business, he would take oil executives to lunch. And this was back in the days of, you know, steak and martini lunch. And he would sit down with these guys. And the first thing they would start doing is telling nigger jokes. And, you know, my dad would come home and we seven children. Every night we sat down at the dinner table together and had conversation and he would tell us what happened. We would say, well, what did you do, dad? And he said, I laughed. And we were like, you laughed. How could you laugh? And he's like, oh, they'll find out I'm black sooner or later. And then, you know, they'll, they will owe me. He said, I wasn't there doing civil rights. I've done my civil rights business because my dad was a civil rights leader in our town and helped to integrate everything. But eventually the oil field executives came to reckoning with the fact that my father was black. And that was when, you know, there were set aside, 8A set aside programs for minority contractors. So my dad has always been, you know, a North Star and a, a shining light for me. Uh, we lost him, you know, some 10 years ago. Um, but he was the one who said to all of us that you can do and be whatever you want to be if you apply yourself, if you put your mind to it. He used to always tell us the world was our oyster, notwithstanding the fact that we grew up in segregation. And he also said to me, leave Louisiana, go someplace else where there'll be more opportunities for you. So I went to college in California, and then I went to Washington, D.C. for law school. And I actually never went home. Uh, And in later years, I think he regretted the fact that, um, you know, I was so far away and some other siblings were far away, but he said to us, go. So my dad would be my first way maker because I saw him make a way where there, where there was no way. Um, I've had the good fortune of having many mentors uh, in my life, Lewis, and I have to pay tribute to a giant that we just left, Vernon Jordan. Um, Vernon was one of my mentors. I knew Vernon from my early Washington days when I was a baby lawyer. And, you know, um, once I met Vernon, he was always available. You could go to Aiken Gump, sit down in his office, talk to him about what you were working on, and he'd give you advice in his deep voice and tell you what he thought you needed to do next. And it was Vernon Jordan who called me to ask me to join the board of LDF, the Legal Defense and Education Fund. And of course, Vernon um, was on the LDF board for many years. And uh, when, first of all, I was so honored that he called me, but when he did call me to ask me to join the board, of course, I was like, yes, of course, of course, you know. 
I mean, who wouldn't do what Vernon Jordan asked you to do? Right. And I've been on the LDF board for 10 years. And through my 10 years on the board and as chair of the development committee, every year after year after year, I would go to Vernon's office at Lazard, sit down with him. Who's going to, who, who can we get as our corporate, you know, um, honoree? Uh, he would help us raise money. And so he not only asked me to be on the board, but then he helped to mentor and support me through right up until I had lunch with Vernon um, uh, in 2019 in his, you know, in the luncheon room at, at Lazard. And we were, you know, thinking and working on LDF matters. So he was one of my great mentors. And then another great mentor was, uh, is still Clifford Alexander. Um, Cliff Alexander was the first African-American secretary of the army uh, under Carter. He was also the head of the EEOC under um, Nixon. And I knew him and his wife, Adele, uh, and they are the parents of Elizabeth Alexander, uh, who is now head of the Mellon Foundation and was uh, the poet uh, laureate, uh, or the um, inaugural poet for President Obama. And um, Cliff has always been a great mentor who pushed me to, uh, he helped me to get on a mutual fund board. Uh, he always helped me to, mentored me about my business and how to grow my business. And then I'll say lastly, uh, a woman who serves as, um, I would say, inspiration uh, is Sherilyn Eiffel, who is um, the uh, director counsel of LDF. She is someone that I work very closely with, and she just inspires me. She inspires me to try to be my best and do my best because I watch her with such admiration uh, as she travels this country, talks on talk shows, litigates cases, and runs, I think, uh, one of the greatest civil rights organizations in the country. So those are three people, four people. I'll stop there, but uh, there are many, many more. And I've been lucky to have so many people who've, who've helped to make the way for me. That's great. Uh, as, as we wind down, Angela, I got one final question. Yeah. As things open up, who knows? You may be the keynote speaker at a CEO convention. What would be the title of your speech? Oh, gosh, that is such a good question. Um, hmm, hmm, hmm. Uh, something about, you know, lost opportunity or um, but it would be something that would uh, help them to understand how their business is suffering from not having diversity, you know, something about what they are missing out on um, that, you know, not having that diversity puts them at a competitive disadvantage, you know, sort of, you know, something because CEOs always want to know how they can make more money, how they can be more successful. So I would be telling them that by the your lack of diversity is hurting your business. And here are the reasons why. So I wish I had a really snappy title, but I don't. What about this one? Always bet on black. Ah! <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, that's what a lot of people are doing today. So I hope that continues to be the sentiment for a very, very long time. Angela, thank you so much for this opportunity. Uh, we appreciate uh, your viewpoint. We appreciate what you do on a day-to-day -day basis in your business. 
I think it helps us all in corporate America. So thank you. We appreciate you joining us today. And always remember this, be a waymaker. Oh, thank you. And Lewis, I just have to compliment you and thank you for putting together um, and coming up with Waymaker. But I also want to say thank you to you because I know what you're doing in your business uh, at Viacom CBS and in your role as a senior leader. And I just want to say thank you because we need more people like you who are willing to use your voice, who are not afraid to step out there and say, this is what we need to do. So thank you for being a way maker for, um, for all of us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation between Lewis Carr and Angela Velo. What did you enjoy about this episode? Let us know on our social media at Waymaker Culture. Connect with Angela Velo and Velo Carr at VeloCarp.com. And don't forget to claim your first six months of the Waymaker Journal free at WaymakerJournal.com. Subscribe to the Waymaker Fireside Chat podcast to get notifications each time we release an episode.